Hello, all you perky parrots out there. Welcome back to another episode of A Little Greener, a podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability. I am one of your hosts, Casey, and I am, as always, joined by the wonderful Sarah. Hello, Sarah. Hello. I got to take some inspiration from your your animal and get get, get perked, perked up a little. We were yeah. Casey and I were just talking before we started recording that we are tired, and Casey's in the final wedding countdown, so there's a lot going on, and we neither one of us have slept well. <laughs> well, but- by the time you guys are listening to this, the wedding's already passed. This is coming out the week right? after. Oh my yeah. goodness! I, we're pre-recording so, today. We're pre-recording. Everybody. And we're technically post-recording yes. <laughs> from the main topic. The timeline of this is all messed up. I have mm-mm, no sense mm-mm. of where we are in time anymore. Um, but I do want to say that this podcast episode we're about to drop is my proudest moment, I think, on our podcast so far. Would you say that you agree with that? One hundred percent. The opportunity to do this took us by surprise and we were very excited to do it. And yeah, proud that we got to do it. So you're about to hear our interview from back in like May with (laughs) Justin Gillis, who is an award-winning writer for multiple newspaper publications. He was on the climate beat for the New York Times for over a decade, and he is coming out with a new book that you should be able to order within like two days of this podcast dropping called The Big Fix, Seven Practical Steps to Save Our Planet. And he co-wrote this with another author, Hal Harvey. And we got to interview him about his book. Yeah, it was very exciting. It was very nice of him to take the time. I never thought that I would get the chance to speak with somebody who wrote about climate for the New York Times or wrote anything for the New York Times, really. So it was a a very cool experience. And we really appreciate him taking the time. We do want to mention before we get into this interview, as Casey said, this was, I believe, in May. So some things have changed recently since we talked with Justin. Yeah, this book is all about practical steps that not just citizens can take, but the government and corporations can take to act on climate change. And so many things that are in this book have appeared in the climate bill that we recently passed, which is obscenely exciting. (laughs) So when we were uh, getting ready for that to come out and I was reading all of these things that were in the climate bill, I was like, oh my gosh, I've already read about these. (laughs) I I have an understanding. Yeah. And so what I think is cool is, is you'll hear Justin talk in the interview about why they wrote the book and really the idea was, was to empower individuals, but it was less about individuals on a sort of consumer level it's in how individuals can impact their communities would you say that's fair Casey for climate change or it's how individuals can get involved in community actions not necessarily talking about the federal government but even within their own local governments or just in their cities but what we've seen happen since then is some of those things happen via the federal government too. Um, but I don't think that that diminishes the importance of the book. I would argue that this makes the book almost more relevant right. than it was before. This is not a bunch of random hopeful ideas, right. and they did very much lean on practicality. These are things 
some of which, not all of which, because there's plenty of things you can do that aren't in the climate bill. Um, but it will give you so much context to why parts of the climate bill are important. Yes. And it's happening. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we were so excited to talk to him. We really hope that you enjoy this interview. The book is called The Big Fix, Seven Practical Steps to Save Our Planet. You can purchase it on Amazon. You can purchase it from your independent book yeah. uh, store we would prefer you did that. That's what I'm going to do. Cause even though we got to read it in advance, I can't wait to have the copy on my shelf just to, to remind myself of this very cool opportunity that we had. So take a listen and we hope you enjoy. All right, everyone, welcome to A Little Greener. This is a very special episode today. We're so excited to welcome our special guest and uh, and chat with Mr. Justin Gillis tonight. So Justin is an award-winning journalist. He's written for multiple major newspapers, including the Washington Post and the New York Times. He's written quite a bit about the environment and climate change, which is what we're gonna be talking about tonight. In fact, serving as the lead climate reporter for the New York Times for nearly a decade. Justin's here with us tonight because he has also written a book along with co-author Hal Harvey. Book is called The Big Fix, Seven Practical Steps to Save Our Planet. And as the name would suggest, the book is outlining different facets or different areas that we need to address to drive down our greenhouse gas emissions and how individuals can contribute to that. So we are very excited about this. The book is gonna be available everywhere September 20th, but Casey and I are very grateful to have had the opportunity to read it already. And we're really excited to discuss it tonight with Justin. So Justin, thank you so much for spending some time with us tonight. Welcome to A Little Greener. Thank you, it's an honor. So your beat at the New York Times was writing about climate change, including working on reporting for the Paris Climate Agreement. How did you first get interested in writing about climate change? I first got interested because I got mad, really, is the truth. Um, going back 20, 25 years, probably, I was doing other things, uh, including uh, in some of those years, covering a scientific beat for the Washington Post, but not writing about climate change. And I just got more and more frustrated at the journalism that I was seeing, which I thought was, you know, highly inadequate to uh, the magnitude of the problem. Uh, and of course, I was also angry about the politics or the lack of politics over climate change in those days. And I kept thinking to myself, I wonder when people are going to wake up and get serious about this. You know, this is a pretty serious problem. When are we going to uh, when are we going to start talking about it like adults and, and start moving forward? And of course, in those years, you know, Europe had started to do that. And, uh, you know, they're still not where they need to be to this day, but they're, they were, have always been ahead of us on it. So, you know, all of that culminated in, you know, the mid aughts, I would say, when I, I finally took the decision to kind of realign my whole career and work on climate change myself. There's an old saying in the newspaper business that if you complain about the way something is being covered, they'll make you cover it yourself. So that's kind of almost what happened. I sort of talked enough about this that people were saying, you know, you should do this because you feel so passionately about it. So that's, that's essentially what happened. 
I love it. We, we've talked on the podcast before about how people should channel their passions, whatever, whatever it is you do, whatever it is that you're interested in, there's a way that you can help in this game. Like you, 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 there's something that you can do in relation to climate change. So it's, that's awesome to hear how you had this platform, you had this experience, you have this knowledge of journalism and you. Yeah. I mean, in a way, I'm still, I'm still pinching myself I, because all along I, I felt like surely there are sort of 10,000 reporters out there smarter than me who sort of want to be covering this topic. And, you know, if you work on any serious issue, one of the things I think you quickly find out is there are just not that many people doing it. And, you know, it's one of the striking things about our world, right? They're just these profound problems that you go in and I mean, climate is not like this anymore, but you know, some of these problems you go in and look and, you know, how many people really understand this? Maybe a hundred in the whole world, you know, kind of really understand this problem. I had this exact conversation, believe it or not, with Bill and Melinda Gates, traveling with them in Africa, looking at their public health work there. Almost the first thing Bill Gates said to me when I met him was, we're still in shock at having gotten into this and discovering how few other really serious people are involved in sort of trying to tackle global public health. You know, this is, you know, life and death for millions of people, right? So, you know, the idea that people have this idea out there that there's nothing they can do, but, you know, what I say to them is, honey, there are not that many of us still. So that means that your voice matters and your work matters, right? Absolutely. That's excellent ad- advice, I think, for people who feel like they're having some imposter syndrome when it comes to being who's qualified to talk about these issues. But I think the analogy to global health. So apropos, because the, both those issues are so massive and long-term that no one person's going to be able to solve it. It's not going to take one genius to, to click a switch and it's over. So really that momentum working together, no matter what your skill set is, that's that's an awesome uh, way to move forward with it. I think of, I actually think of those two problems in a, in a bucket together, you know, uh, well, global poverty and climate change are to me, the two great sort of unsolved human problems. Uh, and of course they're, they're linked and related. And the global health thing is a, is a subsidiary essentially of the poverty problem. Right. So yeah, these are hard things. You, you could almost teach a college class in a uh, journalism class in kind of stories that are too big to cover, <laughs> you know, so big that, pe- that people don't know how to wrap their arms around them, even, you know, in the pages of a major newspaper, much less do, you know, individuals have any idea what they can do, right? So that's the problem we're up against is, is people being terrified by the scale of these problems and thinking they are unimportant in the face of such problems, right? And you you may have just answered the, the next question that I was about to ask, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway, in case you want to expand. But kind of knowing your background and your history in, in writing about climate change, why this book? How did the big fix come about? What made this the right time for you to write this book? How did you get connected with Hal Harvey? Sure. Um, Let me take the last one first. I met Hal pretty early um, in covering the beat, and um, he was running um, a think tank out in San Francisco, uh, a different one than the one he's running now. The one he's running now is called Energy Innovation. Um, he, he created a, a, deliberately created a little bit smaller, more focused shop in the years that I knew him. But when I met him, he was running a pretty big outfit out there focused on climate. 
Uh, and very early on, I, I was kind of listening for who's making the most sense on this subject. And I heard a lot of stuff that I thought was sort of nonsense or that frustrated me or that was undoable, unachievable. And here was how talking about the systems that already exist that sort of regulate our economy and how to sort of turn those systems, and we'll, I assume we'll get into some of the details here in a minute, but how, how people can turn those systems toward a cleaner future. It's a bit like, I remember covering Miami Beach uh, way, way back in the day, and you know there were people who wanted to knock down every building on the southern tip of Miami, Miami Beach and sort of start over. And my reaction to that, the first time I ever heard it was, that is insane. You've got, you know, a bunch of historic buildings there. Work with what's already there and, and make it work, right? And so this was Hal's whole mantra was we've, we've got these systems that already exist, building codes, car efficiency standards, all this sort of stuff. And, and so over time, I came to feel like he was just the most intelligent person I was talking to about how we can do this in a politically tractable way. And that's critical. We can get into this if you guys want, but there's some things that would be, you know, brilliant if we could get them done, but we're, but, you know, they just seem from where we sit right now, politically impossible. So in a way the book, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So after close to 10 years of, of me covering how I, it must've been, you know, I must've been in the shower one Tuesday when the idea just came to me, like, like, you know, I should write a book with this guy because here's the problem I wanted to go after. And I think Hal would agree with this. We kept meeting people. I would go speak on college campuses. And if anybody said to me this once, I've heard it a hundred times, somebody would inevitably stand up in the audience at question time and say something like, uh, this problem seems so large and I am so small, what can I do about it? This book is an attempt to answer that question. And, you know, it came about simply out of the conviction that there wasn't anything quite like it out there. There's tons of books that will tell you about the math of cutting emissions, like where do we need to cut and how fast do we need to cut? But there's not that much that, that gives you any kind of a practical program for doing that, right? And uh, most of the books I've seen just presume that grand new national laws are going to be enacted to tackle uh, the climate problem, which again would be great if we could get that to happen. But you know, we've been trying for a while now, and and you know, we've been trying for 15 years minimum, and and it still hasn't happened. More than that, 20 years. So that's a long answer to your question, but the, but that's how the book came about. Is is we wanted to give people a practical guide that says, look, you you certainly can't solve this problem by yourself. You can't do everything, but yes, you can do something. And here's what you can do. And by the way, most of that stuff is not about being a green consumer. We're, we're all for people being green consumers, but most of it is about political action, mostly not in Washington. A huge amount of what needs to happen is at the state and local levels. So your ability to kind of move the needle on climate may be as close as your local school board or your local uh, city commission or, or county commission. So that's the message that we 
that's the essence of the book. I really appreciated that. That's something that we talk a lot about on this podcast is sort of conceptualizing our individual responsibility versus corporate responsibility versus government responsibility. I think something as the whole green consumers aspect becomes really challenging is the greenwashing element and who has the purchasing power within the economy. So I really appreciate going towards uh, thinking of ourselves of green citizens instead of as green consumers. So addressing that, what are some of the areas that people can start to look at that are being tackled by their local school board? Are there any sort of anecdotes that you can share of people doing this actual work right now in the U.S.? Oh, yeah. And the book is full of these. So, you know, we we write in the book about some climate activists in Maryland who went and uh, badgered their school board. And this is in a place, you know, I mean, Maryland is a fairly liberal state and and um, you've got local governments all over Maryland that have, you know, declared a climate crisis and declared themselves to be uh, you know, on the side of, you know, doing the right thing, and yet are just not moving very quickly at all, right? That This is a problem across the country is this sort of, um, I, I'll call it hypocrisy about, about climate. And so these kids uh, went and badgered the school board and sort of got in their faces and uh, badgered the county administrator. And one of their causes, not the only one, was electric school buses. I mean, that has become available, right? Every day in America, we're sending children to school in in dirty old school buses, belching diesel smoke and blowing it into the lungs of those kids. And by the way, we have a rising asthma problem in children in this country. Electric buses have become available. It's a perfect use of electrification in a lot of ways. I mean, the bus travels a fixed route. You know exactly how far it has to go. You know exactly the time it has to go. You know exactly when it needs to be charged, et cetera, et cetera. So now it is true that the buses are still substantially more expensive at first cost, at least, than the diesel buses. But when you factor in the sort of lower operating costs over time, that, that begins to sort of even out. So Montgomery County, after you know, being badgered by climate activists, committed itself to a complete change out of their school bus fleet to electric buses. And I believe they've got sort of 200 of them on order right now. So there's one example of citizens going down to a school board meeting. Most people don't even think of the school board as a place you could go get something done on climate. But People have to snap to their senses here and think every single day, cities are making decisions to, you know, that run fleets of cars. Say if it's a town big enough to have a, have car, a car fleet for their workers, they're making, they're making decisions every day, every year to buy new fossil fuel powered vehicles, right? Uh, we're making decisions every day to install, you know, gas in new houses when we don't have room for gas in the 2030 climate budget, much less 2040 or 2050. So all of these decisions need to be challenged. And they are frequently decisions being made just by inertia. People are still doing what they have always done and not even stopping to think about the inconsistency between what they're doing and their own sort of climate commitments. So, you know, the the citizens have got to go make noise, you know, I mean, about all of these things. So that's one example. Other examples include... Uh, we write in the book about a group of mothers in Colorado who went down to an obscure agency that uh, you have one in your state. It's called the Public Utility Commission or the Public Service Commission. It regulates the electricity companies, 
And it almost certainly has a huge amount of power over what they do and what they're allowed to build. People don't even know these boards exist, much less that they're legally required to listen to citizens and take their views into account. And so uh, we write about people going down and testifying. You don't even have to go in person anymore, of course, during the pandemic. Everybody started taking testimony by, you know, Zoom calls and whatnot. So you can do it virtual. You can send letters. What we're saying to people is there's a million ways to do this, and we're asking them to get involved and use some of their time and kind of mind share uh, as citizens. It doesn't have to become a lifetime occupation. You know, if somebody does, uh, takes a political act or writes a letter or makes a phone call once or twice a year, that's contributing to the cause. That's the citizen voices rising up, right? So uh, right now, most Americans are not, are doing nothing essentially on climate. And that's what we got to get past. One of the things I really appreciated specifically for the public utility boards there is I think we're all sort of aware that money from corporations influences political decisions, but it kind of feels like a very nebulous sort of thing in the ether rather than being able to point to specific decisions that that in particular impacts. So I really appreciated the aspects of the book that went into a little bit of those mechanisms of like, this is something you don't really know about that seems inconsequential to someone who doesn't know what this board regulates, but this is how those contributions manifest themselves in our policy. So I really appreciate that part of the book. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, it can get quite crooked, actually. You know, some politicians are, are on the take from, you know, from utility companies. There's a huge pair of scandals playing out right now in both Ohio and Illinois. You know, the Speaker of the Ohio House of Representatives was deposed uh, after being charged by the FBI in a huge bribery scandal involving the big Illinois electric utility. And you had a somewhat similar situation play out in, in um, Illinois. So I would say the, the corruption is kind of softer than that in most places. The utilities pump huge amounts of money into state political campaigns. In most states, the, the utility companies, the power companies are the number one donors to, to politics. A lot of citizens don't know that. So, you know, the people that have a stake in higher rates, the people that have a stake in defending their dirty coal plants and their dirty gas plants are going down and buying the politics of your state. Now, I know that's, that's disempowering for a lot of people to hear because it sounds, you know, how am I, how am I as a citizen going to counter that? You would be surprised at when, when real people show up and sort of speak at these hearings and, and, you know, speak to their lawmakers or speak to their public utility commissioners, they do get heard and they do get listened to. And, um, you know, you need to be part of a crowd, right? We, you know, we need crowds of people going down and sort of making these points. And, uh, but it, it's entirely doable and it can influence the way the decisions get made. And that's what, that's what needs to happen. Yeah. So I, I loved both of those examples that you shared. I loved reading about them in the book. I'm glad that you called attention to them with both the buses and the Public Utilities Commission, because I do think they showcase it's not always about you don't have to go to the federal government. There are things happening right in your own communities, your own cities, whatever that you can do to, to make a difference. I had no idea about public utilities commissions before I read the book. There was so much, that whole chapter on the power grid in general was, yeah. was mind blowing to me. There were so many things about how our supply of electricity works that I didn't know before. So I, I did really appreciate that as well. And it helped me to, to kind of see things in a new light. I do also just as, as to what you were saying about the impact that 
folks can have when they just show up. I do wonder, and I wonder this because I feel a little of it myself sometimes, as folks who care about this, but perhaps aren't as knowledgeable, if they go out to one of these meetings, I, I think it can be really intimidating for, for folks. If they feel like they want to do something, they understand, okay, this will, this will make a difference if enough people speak up, but I don't know what to say. Do you have any thoughts about that or any advice in terms of when you go to these meetings, should folks be coming with facts and information, or is it just more really about coming out and saying, hey, this is important to me, if that makes sense? It probably is more the latter. And, you know, I, I, I take your, I take your point. I mean, people do probably do want to have a a strategy or feel like they know, you know, they're not just walking in completely blind and looking foolish. So there are ways to do that. In just about every state, there are groups, environmental groups, and uh, often consumer groups that monitor, for instance, the, the Public Utilities Commission and sort of know what's important and what's up and when it's happening. So Ordinary citizens can sign up for mailing lists to be alerted to these coming events. Uh, And, you know, the same thing may be true in your town or county level. It kind of depends. This varies place to place. You know, in some really small communities, it's probably true that there's literally no one else working on these issues. But, you know, if you're in a a place with some population, then, then there almost certainly is. And so there are ways we list some of the names of the groups in the book. And, you know, we can't do that here and now for all 50 states, right? But uh, there, there are ways to find out sort of and get yourself on mailing lists so that you get alerted to these things. And some of these, some of these groups that we're talking about even have training for citizens in how to speak and what to speak about. I mean, I, was, I, I remember being really moved by the testimony that we recount in Colorado. I was sitting there on that very cold uh, was it February, I think, night when, when this meeting played out. And the, the most moving testimony was these mothers with, you know, six-month-old babies on their hips saying, I do not want my child to grow up to have asthma. I do not want my child to grow up in a world that's, you know, spiraling out of control because of global warming. You know, they didn't need to sort of recount, you know, how many tons of emissions or things like that, right? That wasn't the, imp- you know, you, you've got, the, the, the environmental groups are doing that work, right? You know, Beyond Coal and now their successor organization, Beyond Carbon, is doing that sort of work. They're coming in with the facts and figures. What we need the public to do is to march around and stamp their feet and say, this really matters to me. And I want you as my, you know, elected or appointed representative to do something about it. I appreciate you bringing up rates of asthma. I actually was diagnosed with asthma when I was 18 months old. I grew up in an area that is disproportionately impacted by air pollution because it is both a low income and a high minority area. So I definitely understand that on a personal level. I wonder for folks who are living in areas where maybe people are a little bit more skeptical about the urgency of climate change, if this nexus point between our public health and the health of our children and also how climate change emissions are are produced is a better way to, to lean into it. Would you say like calling out climate change 
is the the way to go even in these areas or or do we just sort of segue in these climate change solutions in with our public health solutions yeah you know you know you sort of have to meet people where they are right and a lot of people are more concerned and and you know it's completely rational to be concerned you know immediately concerned about sort of public health particularly if you're you know if you know people who are asthmatic or you've grown up in uh, in a community that's that's more affected by these problems, I got no argument with that. I mean, it all sort of converges. Air pollution, very conservatively, uh, air pollution from burning fossil fuels kills four to five million people a year worldwide. It is one of the leading causes of death. You know, the air in the United States is sort of cleaner than it is in China or India because we've been working on it for half a century. But nevertheless, it's a major cause of death here as well. And it's, a, it's an additive factor in heart disease, not just asthma, but heart disease, cancer. So it is true that just the health savings from cleaning up our air, the, the lack of spending on these diseases, by many calculations, would be enough in and of itself uh, to sort of pay for the clean energy transition. Now, you know, we don't actually do the accounting that way, right? We don't move the money out of the hospital pocket and into the, you know, into the electricity pocket. So that makes it harder. But that is the, the, the total social benefit from this cleanup is enormous, even if you, even if climate change were not a problem. Another point I'll make along, along those lines, along the lines you mentioned, it's very odd if you look at the polling on climate, consistently, almost 70% of the American public, if you ask, you know, is climate change real? Is it a problem? About 70% of the public uh, will say yes. So that's a large majority, right? If you ask, do you support clean energy? Uh, you get numbers closer to 90%. So there's some delta in there. 20% of people, I presume mostly, well, we know most of them are, are Republicans, although they may be kind of center-right Republicans, don't have any real objection to clean energy or they may actively support it, right? So depending on who you're talking to, you know, the foot you want to put forward might be public health. The foot you want to put forward might be just clean energy. You know, there, there are very far right Republicans who love the idea of solar panels on their house uh, because they despise, you know, the power company as much as they despise the government, right? So, you know, there, and there's, there's a history of people, Barry Goldwater Jr., you know, was a huge advocate in Arizona of uh, keeping the, you know, keeping the solar program out there when the, when the utilities tried to kill it. So I, some of your younger listeners may not know, but that's a pretty conservative name, Goldwater, right? So the, the point is, I think there are a lot of ways into this issue. And there's, if you draw the, you know, the Venn diagram, the circles of overlap between our various concerns, we intersect there in the middle of let's clean it up. Let's clean the system up. And I think as Casey and I are both conservation educators, that's where our background comes from. And I think that's something that we've seen too a little bit. And I think sometimes it can just be one of the challenges about climate change is just that it is so big and so multifaceted and people feel, even if they say, well, yeah, I, I understand this is a problem and there are possible impacts. It's, it's hard for people. It's, it's not as much of a tangible thing as like, I can see the smog over the city, uh, that type of thing. So I think sometimes it's helpful from a persuasive standpoint to, to lean into both of those things as well. And um, yeah. so I appreciated that you had those intersections in the book too. 
Yeah, I, I think what you say is true, but it, it used to be, probably be more true or it's becoming less true with time because people are seeing the effects. I, I think this is the, the, the big change in public attitude uh, has been, you know, people are looking at these fires in California and saying, wait a minute, you know, we always had fires, but we didn't have towns of, you know, whole, whole towns being burned down with, you know, 70, 80, 100 people being killed, right? That's new. Lake Powell and Lake Mead going dry because we're in a hotter, drier climate, that's new. You know, I mean, Las Vegas having to build a brand new water intake, you know, lower in the lake because their old water intake is now, you know, above water, that's new. All this stuff is happening in front of people's eyes. And, you know, the flooding on the East Coast, right, on a, you know, several times a year now, if you live in Miami Beach, you're having to walk through salt water to get to work because the sea level rise is coming at you, right? So I, I think people are starting to see their stuff with their own eyes and starting to realize, oops, maybe it is real. And, you know, we're very late in the game here. You know, we should have been cutting 30 years ago. And we're, uh, you know, we're only just getting to that point in the United States. And, and, and globally, we're still not cutting at all. You know, we're still, emissions are still rising. So uh, we're in a mess. So with that, there's there's a lot we need to do, right? And the and the book covers a lot of different areas, so much ground. We already mentioned the power grid. We've talked a little bit about transportation, but you talk about food production in the book. You talk about land use. Uh, you talk about industry. Again, things that I never would have thought about. Cement production, the efficiency of motors. These are things that that don't cross my mind on a, on a normal day. So, so you cover, you cover a lot of ground. Was, was there anything that surprised you? You've been doing this a long time. You've been covering this a long time, but was there anything that kind of stuck out to you that you learned through your research for this book or, or anything new that struck you? Let me give you one that, uh, an example that I think a whole lot of, uh, of listeners um, will not have thought about. Back in 1992, I was an editor uh, on the staff of the Miami Herald, uh, having just come off a, um, you know, kind of a 10-year reporting career there. I had not thought much at all about building codes, even though I'd spent, you know, most of my journalism career covering, uh, you know, City Hall and kind of watching, you know, building code amendments and stuff go through. And it, it always seemed really boring and building codes, who cares? On that, on a, on a night in August in 1992, I slept on a sofa in the Miami Herald newsroom as the, you know, howling winds of Hurricane Andrew um, sort of blew into Miami. Uh, and it turned out where I was, the sort of northern part of Dade County was uh, damaged, but largely spared. The buildings weren't blown down. In southern Dade County, the, where the eye of the storm came, came over, as a Category 5 hurricane, one of the strongest ever hit to hit the United States, hundreds, a hundred thousand houses were just blown to pieces, uh, more than that, really. Tens of thousands of people made homeless, essentially, overnight. There are stories about people standing in their, you know, the, the sturdiest room of their house, usually the bathroom, you know, holding up the ceiling as the, as the building sort of collapsed around them. Uh, and, you know, the Herald then published an investigative expose in the aftermath of Hurricane Andrew, uh, and the pictures were really vivid. There were neighborhoods where the houses were just blown to pieces. And then across the street, there were homes that were basically still standing. You know, they might have lost windows. They might have lost some roof tiles, but the homes were intact. 
What was the difference? The difference was whether the building codes had been enforced or not, whether the builder had done an honest job. So I saw people live and die that, well, I mean, I didn't personally see them die, but you know, we were writing about you know, life and death on the basis of whether your builder had followed the building code or not. That was my introduction. And we put this in the book, this whole story, because this was my introduction to how important uh, building codes are. So we make the case in the book that we need to turn them to a new purpose. Uh, if they're important for protecting life and safety in a hurricane or in a fire uh, or in an earthquake, they are just as important for protecting health and safety from, a, you know, from destroying the climate of the earth, right? So we try to throw back the curtain here for people who don't know anything about this world. Most people don't realize that you know, their town adopts a model building code that's sort of drawn up at a national level. Uh, it, it can uh, drag its feet, and many towns do, or it can stay up to date on the building codes. It can weaken the building code if it wants to, but whatever they're going to do, they usually do it on a kind of a three-year cycle. So that cycle is coming up again, by the way. We'll have another cycle in, uh, you know, a lot of discussion in 23 to adopt a building code for 24. A lot of cities all across America are going to be thinking about this. We need them to adopt a part of the building code called the International Energy Conservation Code, IECC, or there's related, uh, you know, code provisions for, um, for larger buildings. You know, how many, how many citizens' voices are being heard when the town council, you know, debates the building code, right? Are people going down there every three years, beating their feet on the floor, saying, we want you to make it as good as possible? They are not doing that, but they need to. Uh, it's, it's just one example of something where Here's this completely obscure sort of corner of the economy and the way it operates that fundamentally determines whether we are going to keep putting up crappy buildings that are a liability to America for the next hundred years or whether we're going to stop doing that. And I'm asking people uh, to get involved so that we stop doing that. So there's one example of, of I don't know if that's obscure enough for you. They're, they're even more obscure. You know, cement is maybe even more obscure, right? But uh, <laughs> a lot of these things where, you know, a little bit of citizen power could go a long way. It really could. Yeah, that was another example, that section on the building codes of things that I hadn't really thought about. Casey and I both recently purchased homes. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know about you, Casey, but that did definitely uh, struck a struck a chord with me. So a lot of food for thought there. For sure. For you guys and everybody out there, your house, if you haven't had one, your house needs a blower door test to figure out how leaky it is. And once you have that number, that'll give you kind of a kind of an agenda for what you need to do to, you know, to fix it up and, and stop wasting energy. So th that's that is a that is a green consumer thing that we need everybody to do, right? Yeah, so that, that's worth the cost of admission alone to the book, right, guys? You're <laughs> going to save money off your energy bill, be able to help reduce your your carbon footprint, so to say. We're talking about a lot of obviously, I think the human impacts of climate change and really how dire the consequences are when we don't enact basic policies or do things to help reduce our, our greenhouse gas emissions. Um, something Sarah and I discuss pretty frequently is some of the anxiety being immersed in this sort of world. When all this information's around you, you're trying to do research and most of the information seems like bad news or, or dire news. Do you consider yourself a climate optimist? 
That's a, it is a hard question. Um, I mean, there's no doubt that we are in a dire situation here. We have, we have dragged our feet for too long. We have been irresponsible. Uh, we're still being irresponsible. We have this outbreak that I mentioned, the sort of climate hypocrisy in America, where people are, you know, setting goals for 2050 and writing love letters to 2050 and doing next to nothing, you know, in the, in the near term when it actually matters. So um, that's all quite sobering. And then, you know, I mean, here at least emissions are falling. They've fallen a little bit, uh, you know, worldwide, as I mentioned earlier, they're still going up. So it's extremely sobering. Um, I am, um, to be honest, doubtful about our ability to meet the international uh, temperature targets that countries have set, you know, they've set themselves the goal of trying to limit global warming by, you know, to, to a certain level. I'm, I'm skeptical that we're going to be able to meet uh, any of those targets. But I am an optimist in the sense that I, I think it ultimately can be done. I think we can run an economy on clean energy. And I think that that has been proven uh, now over the past 10 years. You would have, you would have looked at the situation 10 years ago and said, boy, is there even really any evidence that we can do this? Well, the ballgame has really changed. And uh, I, I don't know if you guys want to get into this subject, but we, you know, we start our book talking about the ways that clean energy has become cheaper, right? And it's become cheaper basically because we decided to scale it up. We decided to scale up a couple of technologies in particular, uh, you know, wind turbines and solar panels. We are right now in the process of scaling up batteries, and that's making them cheaper. So for your listeners, I, I want everybody to know there's this, there's the beginning of the book is this chapter called The Learning Curve that explains how this happens, how it is that we take things that seem like really expensive technologies and turn them into affordable technologies. And, you know, that involves consciously overpaying, quote unquote, in the beginning, because you know that in scaling it up, you're gonna you're gonna ultimately make it cheaper. So we we've just we've run this playbook now several times, so we know it can be done. That gives me optimism. I mean, uh, the idea that clean energy is going to become um, sort of too cheap not to use, I, I do think that's inevitable. I think without stronger policies, though, it won't happen fast enough uh, to stave off the worst damages from climate. So. We're in this very odd moment where we're kind of saying market forces will do this, but not quickly enough. And so we need to give them a, a pretty big push with public policy. I think if we do that, and you know, I mean, we're approaching the point, for example, where when you count both hybrids and fully electric cars, 10% of the cars sold in the world are going to be electric cars. We are well on our way, right, to displacing uh, the internal combustion engine. Uh, you know, when you get past 5% uh, adoption in a technology, historically, there's, that's kind of a takeoff point and you, you see it move really quickly. So I, I see things, you know, I see a way that things can go really quickly, but, you know, we, we just have to push harder. We, you know, I mean, I want to be an optimist is the answer to your question. I'll feel better when we've got more people out marching in the streets and, you know, going to, going to city and county and state meetings and making demands. That's what's missing right now. I think one of the things I really appreciated about the book is how up to date it is. I am so used to the argument that clean energy is so prohibitively expensive that 
we can't adopt it. Other countries can't adopt it. So it's, it's nice to see like, oh no, in the last 20 years, we've seen an extreme decrease in the price of these technologies. And this is just going to open up so many opportunities for us. So that just first chapter alone, both helped unlock a little bit of an economic mystery. Anyone, anytime someone tries to start to dive into that side of things, I feel a little bit on the powerless side to start to argue, but that chapter really helped me understand those bigger market forces and definitely gave me a lot more optimism. So I really appreciated that. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, that was that was the goal. Is is we're we're not flying blind here. There there is a strategy. It's been done before. We, it, we know the playbook. It's relatively straightforward. We just have to make the decision to use this stuff and scale it up, and uh, that will drive down the cost. Now we need we need to be willing to abandon the losers, and there will be some technological losers here. You know, so we're going to dump a certain amount of money in and, and realize they're losers, and then we need to put a bullet in them. So, uh, you know, we, how I are not arguing for sort of endless subsidies forever for, for these technologies. We're saying subsidies are a means to an end, and the end is essentially getting, getting the clean tech to the point where it can compete or outcompete with fossil that's had a hundred year head start and a huge amount of public subsidy and public support for all of those hundred years. So we're really just trying to even the playing field here. And I really appreciate too, we talked about this at the beginning, but you know, thinking about it, t- talking about the economics of this and, and, and the politics of this, how you all, you say in the book that you're not gonna dwell on solutions that you think aren't going to work. So everything, all of the sections, everything that you've laid out in this book are things that have been thought out and thought through and things that are are a possibility. So we've all got we've all got a little bit of hope. We do know what to do. We, we just need to do it. And hopefully the, the book will will help inspire more people to, to get out into the streets and do it. So Justin, in the in the book, each of your chapters kind of ends with the section on pulling the levers, which are sort of those things, right? What what do the people now need to, to get out and do? Casey and I tried to do something similar on a much smaller scale with our podcast episodes. We try to kind of end with a, a challenge, a, a takeaway. What's a, what's a specific, actionable, achievable step that our listeners can take based on whatever the subject was that we talked about that day? So we would love to kind of have you do that for us tonight. Do, what, what would you say might be some easy steps that you can give to the listeners right now, a challenge or two that they can do to start making a difference. Let me give you a couple. I know people, I know people like the green consumer stuff because it does sort of empower them. You know, like you, you know, you have money, you have power over what money you spend and how that, that, uh, that you don't necessarily have over the larger parts of the economy. So we, in, in the book, even though we're largely advocating sort of green citizenship, we do talk about some green consumer things. And one of them is what people eat. And we, we argue for incremental change. So, you know, the vast majority of Americans are not uh, vegetarians or vegans and probably are not willing to go that far. And so we argue in the book, to the extent you can cut down on meat, that's a good thing. To the extent you can cut red meat, that's an even better thing. I myself have gone, I mean, I grew up in rural Georgia, you know, like eating beef was, you know, that was, you know, many times a week we did that. 
Uh, I'm down to beef like a handful of times a year now. I just don't do it that much anymore. You know, it's a very rare treat. You know, I haven't cut it out completely, but I've cut way, way down. We make the point in the book that chicken, which has become ubiquitous, is the better climate choice. We sort of make a comparison between, you know, buying an SUV, that's eating a steak, versus, you know, buying a Honda Civic, you know, that's eating chicken. You know, you're still damaging the planet with the, with the Civic, but you're, do, you're damaging it a lot less, right? So, and then we strongly advocate in the book that people try, if they haven't already, these meat substitutes, you know, if you if you've got that taste for eating meat, give the Impossible Burger, at, uh, you know, the Impossible Whopper at Burger King a try, even though it's a dollar more used to be. I need to check that. You know, spend that dollar and send a market signal to the people that are working on these plant-based alternatives uh, to meat. So that's a green consumer thing that people can do: is you know, move down the food chain a little bit out of the climate costly uh, beef in particular, but the climate costly meat and, and dairy products pose a similar problem. There's one thing. Uh, the other thing I guess I would challenge your listeners to do is find out what is going on in their state with the electric grid and what are the near-term plans. And just you know, start by Googling and look for the sort of news coverage about what's happening in the state Find out what the mix is. I mean, how clean is your power right now? I mean, there are a lot of places in this country where people are going to be surprised to learn, well, it's actually relatively clean already, depending on where you are. I mean, if you're in Washington State, your, your power grid is quite clean right now. In the country as a whole, it's about 40% clean. So, uh, you know, of course, there are going to be states where that's 20% and states where it's, you know, uh, 60, 70, 80 uh, if you're still, if your state is still south of 50% clean, then that's an urgent, immediate priority to get that number up. And, you know, citizen voices are needed as we, as we talked about on that. And so just finding out what's happening right now is kind of a first step. And then the next question is, okay, what can I do about it? When, you know, uh, are, are, is there a mailing list I can sign up for that's going to tell me when, uh, you know, testimony is being taken, you know, down at the state capitol. Can I, you know, teleconference into that and make a statement? Can I send an email just expressing my position? People need to raise their hands and speak up. It really is not that complicated. You heard it here, folks, from an award-winning journalist. Your challenge is extra important this week. <laughs> so if you're listening out there, make sure if you engage in this challenge to tag us in it and uh, and also to tag Justin Gillis in it. Justin, uh, where can people find you and where can they find the book? So they can find me pretty easily on Twitter. That's at Justin H. Gillis. That's J-U-S-T-I-N-H-G-I-L-L-I-S. I had to use my middle initial. So I'm on Twitter a fair bit. And as the book publication gets closer, I'll, I'll be you know tweeting a lot, most likely. Uh, People can Google my name and the New York Times and see I still write uh, some uh, opinion columns for them um, on these topics. And so people can find uh, the stuff I've written there. And for finding the book, you know, at the time your podcast first airs, it'll probably still be available in pre-order, which you can do through, of course, through Amazon or any local bookseller that you support can get the book, The Big Fix by Harvey and Gillis. And of course, after September 20th, people can just uh, order it or pick it up in a bookstore. We hope they'll be able to pick it up in an 
even in airport bookstores, we don't know that we'll get that deep in yet, but uh, but we're trying. So, and of course, it'll also be available as an audiobook if you prefer listening that way, and it'll be available as uh, an ebook if you if you prefer that. Perfect. Justin, it has truly been an honor. We really appreciate it. We're very grateful to have been able to read the book and it's been such a pleasure to to chat with you. Uh, before we let you go, just real quick, any last thoughts from you? Do you have any parting thoughts for us? Any last little nugget that you want to leave for the listeners or anything that we didn't cover with you tonight that you really wanted to share? Just one simple thing. If, if you, if you, do something instead of letting yourself be paralyzed by this problem, you will feel better. And you will also, I strongly suspect, find um, a, a sense of community in that. I mean, other people are out working on this problem. Other people care about the future too. And so uh, I just so badly want our listeners to stick their necks out a little bit and go connect with other people who are working on it. And um, you don't have to sit around in a, in a state of paralysis, you know, do something, act. Thank you so much. That's a perfect way to end. No more things to add. <laughs> we so appreciate you being on the pod. The book is the big fix. So look it up, buy it, pre-order it. Uh, whenever you're listening, we really enjoyed it. And thanks for being on. I enjoyed it. Thanks guys. Guys, that was our interview with Justin Gillis, Yay. the author of The Big Fix, Seven Practical Steps to Save Our Planet. The reason I'm saying the whole title is because if you Google The Big Fix, there are a bunch of movies that had that title and I want you to find the book <laughs> really easily. But uh, truly, I thought the book was super valuable read. I enjoyed it. I hope that our listeners out there will go ahead and, and give it a chance, purchase it, borrow it from your library, do whatever you need to do to, to read and learn a little bit more. Yeah. Once again, I think just the practicality of it and the the ways that they approached the issue is fantastic. I learned so many sort of basic things about how the electric grid works and how the economy works in conjunction with you know some of these things that we need to address. So it was a really interesting read for sure, and and hopefully will be for you too and be helpful as well and hopeful. You will read it and you will feel hopeful. And so what more can you ask from a climate change book, guys? That's like really peak what you're looking at. <laughs> so thanks so much for listening, guys. If you want to follow Justin Gillis on Twitter, he left that information in our interview. If you want to follow us, Sarah, where can the people find us? Everywhere. We are on Twitter at a, a, a greener podcast we are i'm doing it out of order we're on instagram at a little greener pod we are on facebook a little greener podcast and you can email us at a little green podcast at gmail.com if you end up getting the book you should give us a tag because we would love to hear your thoughts about it so thanks for listening everybody we'll talk to you soon bye